go ahead and turn to 1 John 1. I mean, just as a point of confession, I have to, I have to share with you all that I, I leaned very heavily this morning on the, on the study and exposition of others to com- for what I'm about to communicate to you. I'm very thankful to God that in the particular week, uh, like the week that I had uh, last week, that there is a number of great, great uh, uh, people, communicators, men and women, communicating God's truth that, that, I could, that I could lean on to help me do my job. And so I want to get that out. So if you're at 1 John 1, I'm going to just give a little context. We began a mini-series last week, and so this is <laughs> the end of it. Um, throughout the first chapter of the first letter of, of the Apostle John, a text that will now and forever will be sort of a pillar for us as Crosspoint in shaping our culture here. So a text like this, the, the study, the, the remembrance, the exaltation of a, of a text like this is, is incredibly important, I mean, to the age and stage of where we are as a church this morning. And so for years and years to come, I want us to lean on this text, for, for us to learn it, for it, for, us to, for, for it to be on our mind and in our mouths. You understand what I'm saying this morning? And John's opening argument in this beautiful letter is, is full of true doctrine. It's, it's a call for obedient living and fervent devotion as, as John will use the word fellowship to describe a number of relationships. Fellowship or koinonia is, is the word in the original language is, is used when he's talking about the relationships in the Trinity. And fellowship or koinonia is, is, is what is used to describe the relationship between us and the Father. Fellowship, koinonia is, is what is used to describe the relationship between you and I together here in the church. I should remind you that the definition here of fellowship is, is a sharing of deep things. They're, they're deep things that you and I have in common by association or particip- participation. I submit to you, family, that big brother, a father figure for us all, the Apostle John wants to talk to us this morning about the hindrances to the fellowship and the blessings of being a part of it. But why today? Why today should we uh, have this talk on Sunday, on this Lord's Day, to study the fellowship of the saints? Why is this prevalent for us this morning? I said last week, but some of you weren't here. John wrote this letter out of concern for the church. He wrote this letter out of concern. He was at Ephesus when he wrote this as a, as a leader among the people of God. And his observations that lead to the writing of this letter still ring true today. And, and, and if I describe those fears, you would have in your mind, or I want you to keep in your mind, that at the time this letter was written was not that far away from when Jesus Christ had already resurrected from the dead. There's a number of us in this room that are actually older than the time Christ resurrected and established an honest, good community of saints to the time John is writing this letter with concern for the church. You understand what I'm saying? It didn't take very long for John to be concerned. John feared 
that there was a practical denial of God seen in the body. That sin was not as destructive, not as harmful, not something we need to wage war against. That transformation was not something to be sought after, prayed for, and experienced. That the Christian can continue in the ways of this world because sin is no big deal at all. Family, John urges us that in the craziness of our lives, the darknesses of our heart, the, the messiness that we experience, we, we should not close those Things off from the people sitting in this room with you this morning. It should be tossed in the light for all to see. Friday night, we had the kings over for dinner. And you know, laundry hadn't been done, right? And so we, I, I used this illustration last week, and then look, it happened. Um, laundry hadn't been done. And so, you know, we did what you do, right? You just Put it all in a corner somewhere, and when you have company over, you just close the door, right? Nobody's going to go in there. It's my room, right? But what happened was is Jace was playing with the dog in my room, and the dog scratched him on the eye. And there was a lot of concern because Jace said he couldn't open his eye. So there was a lot of worry. Alice got right up. Alice, that's Alice right there. She got right up out of the kitchen, walked right into my room uninvited, okay, and went to check on Jace, <laughs> What, hold on, let me make the let me make the apologetic for you. I'm, I'm gonna get back to my manuscript, Alice. Okay. Now Alice is in the medical field, and she is a professional. If there was ever a moment we needed her, it was this one. But the point is that the the laundry, the mess that we had in our lives, was exposed to her. And, and, and here's the thing, it wasn't judged, it wasn't laughed at, she didn't make us feel dirty or, or, or criticized or beneath us. When we apologized, she said, it's totally fine. That's what John is writing about in this letter. When you, when you go through sin, when you go through doubt, when you go through pain, when you go through trouble, you have a fellowship, right? Yes. With the Father through His Son. But the tangible, physical embodiment of that fellowship is seen and felt right here in this room. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I need to build my case. John writes to us that the fellowship we have with God is experienced in the fellowship we have with each other. But there is a prerequisite, right? There is something that comes before. In order for you to have fellowship with God, you got to be cleansed of your sin. Don't say amen to that. I know I'm telling the truth. In order for you and I to have fellowship with God, we need to be cleansed of our sin. We can't have sin in us. But John presses for more than that. He doesn't stop there. He says, not only does sin detract from your communion, your fellowship with God, your relationship with one another is also affected. And so I've titled our time this morning under the banner, In the Blood and In the Light. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? And then would you pray for me as I pray for you? 
as together we hear from God this morning. 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, you are mighty and there's nothing that compares to your might, nothing that can even compare to your word. You have shown yourself faithful, merciful God. Would you make your faithfulness known to us again? Once more this morning as we ask you for your help, would you give us ears to hear your word, eyes to see your truth, hearts that beat for your glory and mission? And would you gift me the preacher with clarity of speech and thought and gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ Jesus name? Amen. You can be seated. Relationships can be an ugly thing, right? They can, be, they can be an ugly thing. Some of you in here have experienced broken relationships, friendships that sort of broke down over years and, and fell apart. Some of you have experienced worse than that. Relationships in the church that were destructive and unsafe. I'm reminded of a very popular podcast right now that everyone is listening to that is emblematic of this. When we give ourselves to something beautiful, something valuable, something vulnerable, something authentic, there is also room for wounding, damage, hurt, pain. And that's the complexity of life, isn't it? If I open up to you, if I open my sin up to you, I also hand you the sword for you to slay me in your sin, right? That is a reality, one I've experienced my, myself in confession of some of the deepest soul-shaping things of my upbringing that was later turned against me and used as a defense mechanism when sin in the room was being addressed. And this happened in the church, no less. Family, I know. I know the hurt that comes from bearing one soul before another. I know it well. And yet the tone of which John writes to us this morning is not disregarding of that reality. 
In fact, John writes in hopes that it would not be true of the church. John says sin should not be the normative disposition of the church. It should be an anomaly, a deviation, an an irregularity. It's not that there shouldn't be no sin among you. John wants to equip us for when there is sin among us. John wants to help us think about our sin rightly so that we may live before God and live before others honestly. That's the key. It's not just lying that's the sin. It's that lying to ourselves about our sin is sin also. This distorts our relationship with God. Which also distorts our relationship with others. And the way John wants to shore us up, make sure we're grounded in fellowship together, is by reminding us of the fellowship we have with God. If you remember last week, John closes his prologue with an eyewitness plea for convincing. He says, I've seen him and I've heard him and I've looked upon him with my eyes. I've touched him with our hands. And now John says in verse five, this is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you. This is what I learned when I heard him speak. This is what I gained when God incarnate spoke life to me, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the sermon, honestly. Right? I mean, that God give us ears to hear. That preaches all by itself. In the original language, there's a double negative there that's really, really beautiful. It says, God is light and darkness in him. No, not at all. That's what it says. John is saying, John is saying, what I'm going to tell you right now didn't come from me. This is not a work I came up with all on my own. No, this is what he himself has revealed to me. This is what he spoke to me and I heard it and now I share it with you. God is light and darkness in him. No, not at all. None whatsoever. This is the reality of God in his spiritual perfection, in his moral excellence, in his supreme transcendence. He is light. It's not that he gives light, even though that's true. It's not that he dwells in light. No, that is also true. But can we, can we think about this for a second? You and I know what light is. If we just look in this room, there's both artificial and natural light. John is not saying God is like the light bulb. John is not saying God is like the sun. No, he is like these light bulbs in here. Hopefully there's none already. I got to That would be weird. These light bulbs in here will inevitably die. And I'm going to have to call one of y'all to borrow one of y'all gigantic ladders so that I could go up there and change out the dead bulb for a new bulb. Church, God's light never runs out. God's light never gives up. God's light has no time frame or time limit. God's light cannot be purchased at a store to decide how I want the temperature that of, of the room of my heart. Do I want it cold or warm? How, how varying degree do I want to experience God's light? That's not a, an analogy that holds up. Nor does the sun. 
you and I can go outside on an overcast day and see that there was something strong enough to distort the light of the sun. You and I have been outside when a storm strong enough brought a darkness that made 1 p.m. look like 7 p.m. Scientists have found, I came across this like last month, scientists have actually looked at the sun's surface. And you know what they found? Dark spots. There's nothing, nothing that can fully help us totally and honestly comprehend and understand the profoundness of John's words. Though we may try, there is nothing that compares to his light, his very essence. It's part of his whole makeup of being and darkness in him. No, not at all. That's one of the ways the English fails us in translating the beautiful poetry of John's writing. Not at all is good, but the reassurance of it is better to me. Darkness in him, no, no, not at all. John wants us to be confident, be assured that the duality of living that you and I have within us is non-existent in God. Here's what I mean. I love music. I listen to just about everything, but there is an artist by the name of Tobey Nwigwi, who uh, we, we, we would say he's an independent underground artist, right? Which basically means like he doesn't have a super large following and there's like no major label or like no money like sort of backing him. Everything's basically on his, di- on his own dime. But Tobey had a breakout hit last summer during COVID. He had a breakout hit last summer that, that was especially like... The Christians love this. I love this. And though I don't agree in totality with the full expression of the lyrics, I think this morning you and I can can agree on the sentiment because we've all been there before. Tobey sings, try Jesus. Please don't try me. Now, before you get all concerned, allow me to make the apologetic. Let someone catch you on a bad day. Right now, I'm not giving permission here. I'm just saying what's true. You and I haven't always held ourselves together on a difficult day with difficult people. Right. That is the truth. And John is making sure that we understand that the duality of dark and light in us that we experience isn't found in God. God is light and darkness in him. No Not at all. He doesn't have bad days. He doesn't have off days. He doesn't sometime lean into the darkness. No, God is good and he is nothing but perfectly good. Nothing but holy. Nothing but love. Nothing but just. Nothing but faithful. Nothing but good. Could we praise him for that this morning? I like the way Charlie Dates comments on this. He says, John suggests that God is enlightenment and holiness. That when you meet God, the light comes on. But when you meet God, the light exposes. And yet, he invites us into fellowship with him. 
Because when man enters fellowship with God, God reveals their sin and condemns it. The foundational ground that you and I enjoy fellowship with God in is found in his very character and nature, right? And sin dramatically affects our fellowship with God. John is going to give us sort of six conditions of this fellowship or three pairs of positive truths and negative lies, lies that we can have about our sin, systems of thought that we can adopt about our sinfulness that makes the world, that makes the word sin lose its meaning. John is going to say, if you're in this fellowship, you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. And we can see each pair clearly in verse 6 through 10. Look with me. If we say we have fellowship in him while we walk in darkness, we what? Lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with one another. You can shout back at me. I hear you whispering. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. If we say we have no sin, what do we do? Deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we, if we what? Confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word not in us. You can see the duplicity in John's writing automatically. Look how often he uses the words if we. If we, if we, if we, John begins with writing, hey, God isn't like the rest of us, and then begins to describe what the rest of us is like. And here is where we need God to be illuminating for us. This text is a warning. A warning against you and I living in two, living two lives in one place. A warning for us to not make empty professions that don't reflect on our gracious reality. A warning for us to not profess things with our mouths and live in ways that contradict that. You can feel the tension emerging already, can't you? Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. John says, if you, if you say you have fellowship with God, but you live in darkness, you lie, I question your character. John was seeing this before his very eyes in his context, first century church, already suffering from this. People who said they were a part of the church, but living in such a way that rejected divinity. John saw how they themselves were untrue. John is, is, is making clear lines in the sand. Says you can't be in fellowship with God and live in darkness. You can't speak truth but not practice truth. But hear me, family, the language, the language of verse six is not communicating or suggesting sinlessness in our lives. It is not suggesting that when you and I enter fellowship with God, we sin no more. No. We said God exposes and condemns. The language of verse 6 is an interdiction. It's a banning of patterns of sinfulness in our lives. I like that we're doing this this, this little mini-series right after we just did Fight for Joy, right? 
Verse 6 is reminding us that a little bit of unchecked sin is like clay in the sun. It becomes hardened into lifestyle habits. To walk in darkness means to live a life that is characterized by your character. My kids, all three of them, they're terrified of the dark. It's a, it's a perplexing thing for me. When you like raise, when you raise kids from little and then they grow up, the things that just happen, you're like, how, how did that, how did that get there? No one taught them to be scared of the dark. No one traumatized them into being scared of the dark. It just, it just happened. They reach an age where not being able to see at all or just not being able to see clearly terrified them. Now, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not talking about like pitch black. I'm like making reference to like, it's just dark in the room, right? Last week, my youngest, he said he needed to use the bathroom. And his brother was using his, so I told him, go to mine. And so he, he, he goes down the hallway to my, to my room. And then I hear the door slam. Pow! I got up from the living room and kind of walk into my room, and Kian meets me halfway. I said, what happened? He goes, it's dark in there. I'm not going in there. <laughs> this is funny. The room layout doesn't change, right? It's not that when I shut the light off or I close the door, my bed moves into a different spot or my night tables are, are tipped over. The, 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 the room stays the same. The bathroom is still the bathroom, whether the light's on or off. It's strange, though. There's something about the dark to them that breeds like this feeling of potential harm, right? And their feelings about something bad happening in the dark so closely reflective of how we behave in our sinfulness. It's done in the dark. We don't want nobody to know. Could I press upon you, family, that there are things you do in the dark, not the literal dark, but the metaphorical dark of no one knowing that is dangerous to your soul? Can I press upon you that the behaviors uh, that you, that the behaviors you're concretizing in the dark are, are actually are participating in the corruption of your character in such a way that you are not only harming your soul, but fellowship with God and fellowship with your family here this family can i press upon you the very feelings my children feel about the dark are justified when we match them to what we do in the dark church being in the dark living in the dark is dangerous to you that's why you don't do it in the light right that's why we don't sin in the light there's a reason why Look how it develops. There's a reason why church stops becoming a priority. There's a reason why relational depth stops becoming work you want to do. John is warning us there's an identifier there. You cannot live in the dark but claim fellowship with the light. John follows with verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John says, true believers walk in the light of grace. They have found the road that continually leads to Calvary. They know who they believe in, and they go forward intelligently. They, they, they know the light that personified, that illuminates their way of exposing every single thing and calling it out. John says in verse 5, God is light. And then he says, if we walk in the light... This is to signify, to illustrate a life in fellowship with God, a life in relationship with God. Walking in the light is what we are compelled to do because we are in fellowship with the one who is light. When we walk in the light, two things become a reality. One, we have fellowship with one another. That's what he says there. You have fellowship with one another. It's weird, though, because the expected line of thinking, if we're reading everything at face value, should read that we have fellowship with God. But no. Why does John not address fellowship with God here? Now, there's, there's been some debate between scholars on the understanding of this verse, but here's where I lean. Fellowship with God is an already existing reality if you're walking in the light. Right? Not fellowship with one another. Walking in the light doesn't automatically lead to a place of understanding we're doing this together. How many times have you heard it? I'll need church for Jesus. To have fellowship with one another, John is saying. To have fellowship with one another, a deep sharing of things together by way of participation. Remember our definition. Is more than just coming together on Sunday mornings. But rather it means that our common relationship with God, our mutual love for the Lord Jesus and his love for us binds us together in such a way that's deeper than any other earthly connection you have. What we have together is an eternal brotherhood, an eternal sisterhood, an eternal familyness together that causes us to participate in the walk together. This is what sin is out to destroy. Which brings me to the second reality. Walking in the light means we have cleansing from sin. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another doesn't presume sinlessness. It refers to our communal spiritual state of cleansed by the blood. It's the death of Christ on the cross that has washed away all our sin, pardoned every iniquity, and smoothed over every blemish. See, when you walk in the light, you respond like my youngest when he entered the room. He quickly turned around, shut the door, and said to me, I'm not going in there. That's fine. You don't got to make that connection. You're not hearing me this morning. If you are in the room and God feels far from you, check for sin in your life. If you are in this room, look around you. And you don't feel connected to one another in the fellowship that John is describing here. Check yourself. For sin, shut the door 
run away and confess I'm not going in there. Walking in the light brings us in fellowship with one another. This doesn't produce cleansing, but constantly positions us upright, face to face, with our need to remind ourselves of the blood that does cleanse us of our sin. I'm taking long this morning, but this text is really good. Go to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know what I love about this verse? John doesn't exclude himself. Right? He doesn't exclude himself. He doesn't say, if you say you have no sin. He says, if we, myself included, say we have no sin, we, myself included, deceive ourselves. Remember, family, John fears a culture of functional disregard for sin is happening in the church. I want to take this from a few angles. One, you could be an unbeliever in this room and see that you have no sin in you. Come to that conclusion is what I mean. And to to this I say, all of us are born in sin. All of us enter this world with the curse of sin pronounced over us. I see this clearly as a dad. I never taught my kids the word no. Never. Not once. It just happened. It just happened. Go to bed. No. What? They figured that out all by themselves. We are born into sinfulness. To deny this is to forsake truth. Here's the other angle, though. You could be saved this morning, predestined, elected, sanctified, on your way to glorification. Come quickly, Jesus. And you could be going through a season right now where you think you're not holding to any sinfulness. John says, we all got it. No one can escape it. We're all struggling. Don't deceive yourself. Because you will be tempted to not see your own sin. Then be tempted to deceive yourself so that you can self-righteously look at someone else and condemn them for their sin. Another angle. You could be in the faith. And be struggling through a hard season of sin. I want to encourage you, brother and sister, to once again look around the room. You're in good company. Everyone here is grappling with verse 8 too. Everyone here is grappling with this sentence. No one is above this, not even the author. All have sinned. All of us have some crooked ways. And if you're wondering how this hits you, then then allow me to give some description of sin. It's not just behavior. It's not just behavior. I know that might be hard to understand. It's very easy for us to call out the abuser or the racist or the drunkard or the fiend. It might be very easy for us to look at manifestations of behavior and be like, that's bad. But it's not just that. It's attitude. 
It's attitude. It shows up in the way we think. It shows up in the way we speak. Our hearts, temptations, our hearts, longings. Sin is both subtle and overt. And this is what John is trying to guard us against here. By giving us hope. He says all of us have sin. All of our sin is going to be expressed differently. But all of us have hope. All of us can do something with that sin. Verse 9. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the best news we have right here. If there was ever any moment for you to shout an amen to God, it's when reading that text, we have something we can do with our sin. We can confess our sins. John is saying, you you ain't got one sin or one type of sins. No, we got sins. We all got dirt. We all got mud we need to address before we can come inside the house. I remember I used to play outside when I was little and we would get rained out on, right? Because Florida weather, right? And by the time I got home, being wet wasn't my problem. It was that there was a dirt road. It was so broke, we didn't have pavement. It was just dirt road to get into the house. It was dirt road, and so it wasn't just wet. I was muddy. My mom would tell me, go hose yourself down outside. You already wet. Before I could come inside the house, though, John is saying, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, you might interrupt him, though, and say, who do I confess to? Who? Let me tell you this. Not everyone needs to know your sin. But somebody needs to know your sin. You need someone to confess your sin to that will not celebrate it that will not condemn you for it. Rather, you need someone who will bring you with them to Calvary and remind you of the blood shed for you and the grace poured out over you and the hope you have in a returning Jesus to make all things new. That's what you need, family. And that's what you need to be also. We need to be the kind of people that one another can confess to. We need to be humble to take a sinner like ourselves to the cross. Just as we, we are, we cannot, we cannot forsake them. We cannot belittle them. We cannot manipulate them. We cannot seek to put them in their place. We need to be a safe place for others around you to be able to confess to. We also need to confess hurt to the people we hurt. Last Sunday, I received a letter. Before I tell you what was in the letter, let me say this. Three years ago, I experienced a tremendous amount of hurt. Some of you follow me on Twitter and Facebook, and so you've seen me make reference to what me and my family went through in late 2018. But there was someone there who who really hurt me. Hurt me bad. I don't like to admit this because I I like to think my skin is thicker than it actually is. But they actually said really piercing things to me. Things I, 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 I held for three entire 
years. And then last Sunday, I received a letter. A letter from a person I hadn't spoken to in three years. A letter from someone whose last words to me were some of the most damaging words ever uttered to me. I received a letter of repentance. And they confessed their sin and pleaded for reconciliation. And on Monday, I picked up the phone and we spoke and I got a family member back. Family, confession heals the body. That's a double entendre. Confession heals your body and it heals the body. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, oh man, if you a highlighter, this is it right here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God is faithful and just. Faithful and just. Does that not destroy like your theological framework right now? That's a wild statement, isn't it? Faithful and just. How can God be both faithful and just to forgive us our sins? How? If he's faithful, he's consistent. And if he's just, he has to be right in doing the same. And if the wages of sin is death, how can he be both faithful and just? That's perplexing, isn't it? That's perplexing. Think about it. John just said, all of us got sin in the room. And if we all got sin in the room, then we all got the promise of death pronounced over us. It would be faithful and just for God not to forgive us, but to condemn us. And yet John says here that he will forgive us. And cleanse us, church. This might be the greatest conundrum in all the Bible. God is light. And darkness in him, no, not at all. God is faithful and just. And we're broken sinners tasting darkness and deserving wrath. And John says, you don't get what you deserve. Why is that? Why, why is that? Chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not, oh, I'll get goosebumps. And not just for ours only, but for the sins of the world. John is saying, you don't get what you deserve because someone got in the way of the law for you. You have a representative who stands before the judge on your behalf and makes a plea with you. I wish you've been in a judge before and you didn't have a representative to stand in your place because I've been there. I've been there. Once upon a time, I had to stand before a judge. I had to place my trust in a defender to stand in my place and defend me from the judge. That morning, I was confident I was coming back home. I was confident. I left my breakfast on the counter. I didn't want to be late. The judge called my name. I stood before him looking around. My defender didn't show up. I 
I had no one to go before me. No voice to speak on my defense. No advocate to shield me. And the judge found me guilty. Oh, but John, John says, you have an advocate. You have an advocate who has gone before you. And not only did he go before you, but he got you off because he knows the judge. You have an advocate who took your punishment, who took your place, who when it mattered most and your name got called, he got in the way and said, he's covered by my blood. Church, God is faithful and just, faithful to forgive and just to forget, for, to cleanse you, sorry, of your, all of your unrighteousness. Because the grace and mercy of Christ, our advocate, coming to our defense is not just for the recovery of our sin, but for the prevention of it. Mm. There's some sin, family, you'll never have to step into because of the blood. There's some sin you'll never have to go anywhere near because of the blood. Right? You ain't got to sin. John is saying, you ain't got to sin, but in case you do. Right? He's saying, you ain't got to sin, but in case anyone does, in case you do, I got good news for you. We have an advocate. We have a paraclete. We have one who stands next to you in front of the judge because you can stand before the judge alone, but I don't recommend it. Or you can stand before the judge with Christ and say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Would you stand with me and worship?